Welcome to Warbird Radio Down Under. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And with me today is my co-host, Grant McCarran. Hi, Grant. Hey, Dave. How are you going today? Great. Welcome back to the show. This is the first time that we've been on air together for how many years? Ooh, <laughs> A long time. Yeah. Too many to think about, mate. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but it's good to have you back on the show. And uh, we're both back on Warbird Radio again. Um, we used to be on with the Wings Over New Zealand live show. Uh, we're no longer no longer live, so we're now Warbird Radio down under. Yeah, yeah, because Wings Over New Zealand not so live just didn't quite work. Yeah, exactly. And now we've expanded a bit, and we're covering uh, Australian topics as well. And you're a Kiwi who lives in Australia, um, so you've got access to some interesting stories over there, and um, it kind of broadens our our platform a little bit. Yeah, it does a little. And of course, you've got your own show in Australia too, playing crazy down under with Steve Vischer, and uh, that's that's back too from the dead, uh, yep. which is which is really good. Uh, all the shows are coming back that that had been old favourites and then passed away; they've all risen again. So, <laughs> I'm not dead yet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not kidding anyone. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's good to be back. Uh, we've got eleven episodes out in series two, and. Uh, the 12th is in like it's all recorded and all that we've just got to get all the edit done and everything um of course steve being in a hospital has slowed that down a bit because it's now all on me and i've got very little time yeah but, yeah uh, yeah we should we should have it have it out in the not too distant future all going well probably yeah after this episode i would suspect yes well um and all the best to steve too i noticed that he was in hospital i saw his posts and uh yeah. i hope he's hope he's back and fighting very soon yeah, no, he's he's recovering. We're chatting, like texting and occasionally chatting uh, most days. So yep. yeah, it'll be good to have him back on deck. And uh, I've already told him, get hurry up, get well. I've got a whole lot of editing I need you to do. <laughs> <laughs> now, today's show is a little bit different because it's not specifically about warbirds, but uh, you've delved into your archive uh, with a fantastic recording of a very famous Australian bomber pilot from World War II, Peter Isaacson. And um, Peter was also um, president of the Australian Bomber Command Association for a long time and things like that, wasn't he? So he's a well-known figure uh, yeah. before, before his death in 2017. Yeah, that's right, mate. Uh, this recording's from 2014. Uh, I was privileged to uh, be at a location where he was speaking and they allowed me to record it. So, yeah, a, a, a great presentation from him about Bomber Command, and he even takes you on a mission and has you imagine it. And, of course, for those in New Zealand who have been to MOTAT or those in Australia who have been to the Australian War Memorial, the Lancaster displays there, just close your eyes and imagine those, and you can really visualise it. It's quite an amazing concept. Absolutely. No, he, he's a very good speaker, and uh, he really takes us on a journey. So, And, and he has some some good thoughts on bomber command and uh how it was portrayed but how it, it was felt by many of the crew uh so it's 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 a really good listen and of course peter isaacson is the uh, man who flew lancaster q for queenie which is now in the australian war memorial underneath sydney harbour bridge he said there were two ways to get across one was via the bridge i took the other way and flew under it <laughs> <laughs> yeah a very famous uh a story that one and there's photos of that of him flying the lancaster under the bridge and uh, and also uh if people want to know uh, or learn a little bit more about uh, peter isaacson i did interview him back in 2015 um for my wings over new zealand show series which was wings over australia so i'll put the link to that in the show notes as well 
but I guess we should uh, just turn it over now to, to uh, Peter's presentation. That'd be great. Let's uh, let the tape roll, as the phrase goes. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Of the controversies arising from the conduct of World War II, the one that's created the most discussion, argument and dissension is the role played by Bomber Command and the actions of Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, its Commander-in-Chief. Harris was the one senior Allied commander who did not share in the post-war accolades and honours bestowed on others in similar positions to him. Some historians, even some German leaders, claim Bomber Command made a great contribution enforcing victory for the Allies. In fact, were instrumental in ending the war in Europe sooner than would have been the case had the bombing raids not been successful. Others aver that many of the bombing attacks were unnecessary and claim they were targeted on cities that neither produced nor transported nor harboured military hardware or personnel. And there are claims that those of us in Bomber Command who took part in the raids, as well as those that planned them, directed them and approved them, were all war criminals in no lesser degree than those who were proved guilty at the Nuremberg trials and since. As I've titled this address in defense of Bomber Command, I hope to impress you with the argument that it was the intention of those who planned, approved, and participated in Bomber Command and the United States Eighth Air Force, bombing attacks on Germany, Italy, and occupied Europe to strike at the heart of the enemy and military production transport and personnel. But first, let me take you on a journey, a flight which in 1943 would have taken anything from four to eight hours. But today will only take a few minutes. So please close your eyes and visualize the sights, hear the sounds and inhale the smells which some of your family or friends lived with in days and nights 70 or 80 years ago. Close your eyes and you'll see the briefing room in a Nissan hut on an English Bomber Command airfield. There's a map on the wall and strands of coloured wool stretch from the airfield across England, across the Channel or North Sea, across Europe to a place on a map deep in enemy territory. Listen and, and you'll hear the intelligence officer, the meteorologist, the navigation signals and gunnery leaders brief the crews on the route, the enemy defences, the colours of the day, the weather to and from the target and the reason for the attack. Now you'll see an aircrew mess, and on the tables in front of the men, there's an operational supper of baked beans and just perhaps an egg. 
A little later, we're in the crew room. The men are dressing in their flying suits, their fur-lined boots and jackets, their white polo neck sweaters. They're clasping flying helmets, maps, sextants, navigation bags and parachutes. Can you see them getting into a truck, motoring around the perimeter of the airfield, stopping beside their aircraft, getting out, having a last-minute cigarette and a nervous leak? Listen and you'll hear the sound of the mighty Merlins starting up Port Inner, Port Outer, Starboard Inner, Starboard Outer. Visualize the aircraft trundling around the taxiway, waiting for takeoff. Do you feel with the crew the tightening of your stomach as the green light flashes, as the captain and flight engineer open the throttles wide? Keep listening and you will hear the mighty roar of the four engines as the aircraft speeds down the runway and takes off into the dark. Now there's the rattle of gunfire as the gunners test their guns over the channel. Can you hear the sound of the navigator's voice calling out changes of course to the captain? Suddenly, urgently, there's a cry from the gunners as they sight an enemy aircraft moving in from ahead or above or behind. Keep looking behind your eyelids and you'll see the light flack, the greens, the reds, the whites coiling lazily into the air, thankfully below you. You'll see the puffballs from heavy flack off to starboard, to port and above. If you sniff, you'll get the smell of cordite as the flak gets too close and the crew know that the enemy are getting their range and their position more accurately. Keep your eyes closed and you'll see the target. The searchlights probing the sky for a victim. The target indicators from the pathfinders floating lazily down to the fires on the ground below. Keep listening and you'll hear the calm voice of the bomb aimer. Left, left, right, steady, steady. And you'll hear him call, bomb's gone, flashlight away. Now you'll sense the feeling of relief as the captain turns the aircraft for home and warns the crew not to relax. Soon you're back in the briefing room and there's a smell of a murmur of voices as the crews are being debriefed. There's a savoury smell of cigarettes and coffee, but there is anguish on the faces of the men as they read the names on the operations board, which do not have a landed time beside them. You can open your eyes now, and I hope you have relived in the last few minutes something of the many hours your airmen, fathers or relatives spent flying in Europe in 1942 and 1943, when the losses on a tour with Pathfinder Force were 83%, a survival rate of 17% of those who flew with PFF at that time. It was Winston Churchill who set the pattern for the attacks 
by a bomber command. In late 1940, after Dunkirk, he wrote to Lord Beaverbrook, the Minister for Aircraft Production, when I look around and see how we can win the war, there is only one power. We have no army that can defeat the Nazi military power. Our sea blockade of Germany is broken and shortly Hitler will have the resources of Africa and Asia. Should he fail to invade the United Kingdom, he will rebound eastwards. There is only one thing that will stop him, and that is devastating attacks upon the Nazi homeland by very heavy bombers from this country, without which I do not see a way through. The effectiveness of the bombing policy initiated by Churchill was confirmed by Dr. Albert Speer, the German Minister for Aircraft Production, who wrote after the war, the strategic bombing of Germany was the greatest lost battle for Germany of the whole war, greater than all our losses in all our retreats from Russia and in the surrender of our armies at Stalingrad. Furthermore, Speer reported to Hitler on the 19th of January 1945, it has now been determined that the attacks which take place so often at night are considerably more effective than daylight attacks, since heavier bombs are used and an extraordinary accuracy in obtaining the target is reported. Consequently, even if during the first quarter of 1945, the repair work and plants are completely untouched, the theoretical production figures, which seem possible in the last quarter, will not be reached. The views of Speer, a dedicated Nazi, emphasise the contribution of Bomber Command in helping win World War II for the Allies. It's the Commander-in-Chief of Bomber Command, Air Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, who receives most of the appropriate from those who denigrate the efforts of Bomber Command. Yet Harris was only carrying out the orders of the War Cabinet, as relayed to him by a ministry who on the 5th of May 1942 directed him to begin operations against primary industrial targets, including Cologne, Duisburg, Dusseldorf, and the North German ports. In fact, for some time, right up to the first thousand bomber raid against Cologne on the moonlight night of the 30th and 31st of May, 1942, the efforts of Bomber Command did not yield the hoped-for results. The Cologne raid had three major successful effects. The first was that it did great harm to local industry. The second was it proved to the German High Command that the Royal Air Force was capable of striking hard at German industrial installations. The third and possibly the most important effect was that the success of the raid materially lifted the morale of the British people 
because it proved to them that despite the British army having been driven from mainland Europe and the catastrophe of most European countries being overrun by the Germans and the horrendous loss of merchant ships at sea, there was a force capable of striking back at Germany. The Thousand Bomber Raid on the night of the 30th of May 1942 was my first operational sortie. It was followed two nights later by a Thousand Bomber Raid on Essen. Bad weather caused this to be relatively unsuccessful. But when on leave in London shortly after, it was evident to me that the morale of the British people had been raised by the realisation that they did have a force capable of penetrating the enemy defences. About six months later, navigational aids such as G, H2S and later on Oboe began filtering through. Although these helped the bomber crews find their targets, something more was needed some means of controlling and directing the main force onto the targets and aiming points. Hence the reason for the formation of Pathfinder Force. It had been proved that experienced crews using G were reasonably effective, but the problem was that even experienced crews did not last long. What was needed according to the Deputy Director of Bomber Operations at Air Ministry, was a force of well-trained, experienced crews capable of finding the targets and aiming points and leading less experienced crews to them. For this reason, Pathfinder Force was formed under the command of Group Captain DCT Bennett, an Australian officer who was regarded as the finest navigator in the Royal Air Force and an exceptional pilot. Pathfinder crews had to complete an extended tour of operational duties that regrettably increased casualties in the Pathfinder force to the extent that our survival rate in early 1943 was just 17%. Bennett said of Bomber Command crews, the contribution of an aircrew member of Bomber Command who completed an operational tour or died in the process, measured in terms of danger and death, both in intensity and duration, was, in my view, far greater than any RAF, Navy or Army fighting man. The contribution of a Pathfinder in the same terms and indeed of responsibility was at least twice that of other Bomber Command crews. Pathfinders were the only members of the RAF awarded a distinguishing emblem, an eagle in gilded metal worn on the flap of the left breast pocket until and subsequent to the completion of an extended operational tour. If the extended tour was not completed for reasons other than wounds sustained on an operational flight, the authority to wear the badge was withdrawn. From the moment he went to Bomber Command in 1942, 
Arthur Harris's stated principle was to devastate Germany by relentless bombing until the Nazis were forced to surrender. Later, he was supported in this policy by the United States 8th Air Force under the command of General Karl Sparts. Between Bomber Command and the United States 8th Air Force, Germany was to be subjected to around-the-clock bombing as weather conditions permitted. It was the industrial cities of the Ruhr, known to the air crews as Happy Valley and Berlin, the big city, that were the main targets in 1942 and 1943. On June 10, 1943, the Allied chiefs issued the Point Blank Directive, which stated, the mission of the United States and British bomber forces is to conduct a joint United States-British air offensive to accomplish the progressive dislocation and disruption of the German military, industrial and economic systems and the undermining of the morale of the German people to a point where the capacity for armed resistance is fatally weakened. Heavy losses were sustained in pursuing this objective. For example, the attacks on the oil refineries at Ploesti, which produced one-third of Germany's oil, took 24 raids, involved over 1,000 aircraft, cost 305 heavy bombers and 3,000 British and American aircrew. On the night of the 13th of January, 1945, 796 aircraft of the Royal Air Force bombed Dresden. In the daylight next day, 413 aircraft of the United States 8th Air Force bombed Dresden. Dresden was as legitimate a target as any other German major city. When the attacks took place, it was by no means certain that the war was coming to an end. The city was an important industrial center. Its many factories had been converted to manufacture military hardware, bomb sites for the Luftwaffe, radar and electronic components, fuses for anti-aircraft fire, military sites, submarine periscopes and cockpits for Messerschmitt fighters. The Dresden Yearbook of 1942 boasts that the city was one of the foremost industrial locations of the Reich. Furthermore, Dresden was an important transportation hub for the German troops fighting the Russians about 80 miles east of the city. More people died in the Allied attack on Hamburg in July 1943, in the German bombing of Stalingrad in August 1942, in the American raids on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Yet Dresden has been made quite erroneously as an outrage of Anglo-American barbarism. Soon after the raids, 
Joseph Goebbels lied in telling reporters in neutral countries that Dresden had no war industries, falsely claiming that the raids were acts of cultural desecration and wanton uh, mass murder. There's a marked difference between the post-war reconstruction of Dresden and Berlin. Berliners insist on showing visitors the full array of Hitler's crime scenes. Outside the Berlin Philharmonic Music Hall is a sign explaining that nearby is the location of the villa that housed the infamous Triple T4, the Nazi program for exterminating disabled people. In response to the suggestion that the bombing of Dresden was vengeance, David Libeskind has responded that it was not vengeance. There was a military reason to subvert the German troops that were still fighting the Allies. The war was not over. Who knows what the consequences might have been if the bombings had not been undertaken. George Packer concludes, the challenge of Dresden is to acknowledge all of the war's victims without yielding to the temptation of equivalence to see the evil of all war and also to the evil which led to this war, to remember that the firestorm that killed thousands of people saved others. Neither I nor my Bomber Command colleagues understand why the Dresden raids have been singled out as being so uniquely terrible. Were they any more terrible than the 26th of April 1927 bombing of Guernica by the Condor Legion of the German Luftwaffe that led that small Spanish town, a pile of rubble, blood, broken bones and dead bodies? Was it any more terrible than the bombing and destruction by the Germans of Rotterdam, of Warsaw, of Coventry, of the Blitz on London and other major cities? Surely it cannot be compared with the deliberate targeting of London by the V1s and V2s, which were programmed to fall indiscriminately on areas of civilian occupation. Was it any more terrible than the American nuclear bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which are arguably credited with the early ending of the war against Japan? In my opinion, the defense of the bombing of Dresden is twofold. One, that it was a justifiable military target. And secondly, that there was a war on, a war that had been started by the elected leaders of Nazi Germany, that it was a war started by them in 1939 that killed the citizens of Dresden and the citizens of so many cities, towns and villages in a score of countries. The real question to be answered is, was the bomber offensive itself morally flawed? That question must be answered by referring back to the reason for bombing, that there was a war on, a war that had been started by the elected government of Germany. Moral arguments against the bombing that overlook 
dismiss, devalue or ignore that point are fundamentally flawed. Has morality any place in war at all? Lord Macaulay in 1931 summed up the argument that talk of morality in war is ridiculous when he wrote, the essence of war is violence. Moderation in war is imbecility. It is war itself that is immoral. But once war has broken out, the important thing to do is to win it at any cost, particularly if that cost is borne by the enemy. Neither the wrongs inflicted by the Germans nor the devastation and death caused by Brahman Command it make either of them right. But Brahman Command at least were trying to right the wrongs wrought by the indisputable fact that the elected leaders of Germany were the cause of the destruction of their cities and the death of their citizens. The attacks on Germany, Italy and the occupied countries of Europe by Bomber Command cost the lives of many thousands of Britons, Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, South Africans and those from other countries of the British Commonwealth. More than 54% of Bomber Command aircrew died in the war, a grim statistic. Some lay the blame for these deaths directly at Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris. There are several views on Harris. Scientist Freeman Dyson, who in his early 20s spent the war cosily ensconced as a civilian in the operational research section of Bomber Command Headquarters, has written that Harris accepted no criticism never admitted his mistakes and was as, as indifferent to the slaughter of his airmen as he was to the slaughter of German citizens. Other and opposing views are those of the airmen Harris commanded. We recognised that it was the duty of Harris to mount and direct an all-out offensive against Germany. We subliminally recognised that we were likely to die, but we knew equally that Harris cared for us and we reciprocated his affection. We who flew in Bomber Command regarded Harris as a compassionate man and a great leader. We believe it is tragic that his memory is demeaned, as are the efforts of those of us he commanded by others who fail to recognise that Harris his aircrew and ground staff were largely instrumental in saving much of the world from coming under German occupation and control with its inevitable consequences. Winston Churchill summed up the efforts of Bomber Command when he said, Night after night, month after month, our bomber squadrons travel far into Germany, find their targets in the darkness, by the heavy, highest navigational skill, aim their attacks often under the heaviest fire, often with serious loss, with careful, deliberate determination, and inflict shattering blows on the whole of the technical and war-making structure of the Nazi power. On no 
part of the Royal Air Force does the weight of war fall more heavily than on the bombers. I have no hesitation in saying that this process of bombing the military industries and communications of Germany and the air bases and storage depots from which we are attacked affords the most certain, if not the shortest, of all the roads to victory. The casualty statistics of Bomber Command are stark. 125,000 aircrew were engaged in operations against the enemy. Of those, 56,927, 46% were killed on operations. 11,250, 9% were killed in crashes in Britain, giving a 55% death rate. 3,750, 3% were seriously injured in crashes in Britain. 15,000, 12% became prisoners of war, and 1,250, 1% evaded capture after being shot down, leaving just 37,500, three in every ten of us who took part physically unharmed. The Royal Australian Air Force air crew who fought with Bomber Command numbered just over 1% of all Australians who enlisted in World War II. Yet of the 10,000 Australians in the command, the 4,210, 42% who died, accounted for 22% of the 18,679 Australian deaths outside Australia, not necessarily in combat. As a comparison to those horrendous figures, in World War I, in which the total Australian battle casualties far exceeded those in World War II, at Gallipoli, of the 50,000 Australians who took part, 17% were killed. And on the Western Front, 12.5% died, both low in percentage terms in comparison to the 54% death rate of Australians in Bomber Command. To conclude, my question for you to mull over tonight, was the leadership of Air, Marsh, Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris and the means adopted by Bomber Command to defeat Germany and Italy and the 54% aircrew losses incurred by those means justified by the Bomber Command's contribution to the ultimate victory of the Allies. Ladies and gentlemen, think it over. Yeah.